Open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible or forgot to bring one this morning, we have some ushers available in the aisles. Just grab their attention. They can get you one for this morning. Luke chapter 2. We're going to be going through Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 21. Of all of the Christmas passages, I I think this one is my favorite. I think I I like this passage so much because it has this this unusual combination of, of, of shepherds and angels. When you think of shepherds and angels, these are, are two different characters. They, they don't have much in common. I mean, their, their worlds are completely different. You think of, of angels, you think of these brightly shining, majestic beings, these long, flowing white linen robes and kind of floating around, maybe playing harps. But then you think of, uh, you think of shepherds and, and you think of kind of rough and just ordinary, simple farm hands, kind of tough. You know, kind of burlapped, wearing grass stain, kind of smell like sheep. Just not, not a lot there to, to shepherds. Very, very different than angels. But in this passage, in Luke 2, you see when, when the shepherds come together with the angels, you see there's actually something in common. It's incredible seeing this, this text. When, when the shepherds encounter the, the angels, their response is the same. They, they have this commonality of, of worshiping Christ. When they encounter the revelation that, that Jesus has been born, even though their worlds are completely different, they have the same response. They worship. In Luke 2, verse 8 through 14, we, we see the, the angels come down to the shepherds. The angels come down and give the, the announcement that, that Jesus has been born in the town of Bethlehem. And then the shepherds worship. They, they bust out in song. They start singing and praising God. And then the shepherds, they they hear this news and they go and travel to Bethlehem and and they find Jesus. They find Mary and Joseph. Same response. They worship. They bust out in song and they start praising God. I just think it's so neat. These these two worlds come together and the response is the same. So this morning, as as we go through Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 21, we're going to do two things. First, we're going to go through the text. And, and as we're going through the text, we're going to keep a close eye to this main idea of worship. What is worship? The shepherds worship. The angels worship. So we're going to go through the text looking at what is worship. And at the end, we're also going to conclude with a couple of comments on, on what worship is for us here at Harvest Indy West. It's phenomenal worship. So we'll talk about it a little bit. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 8. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. In the Old Testament, the the image of the shepherd is is someone who who cares for the flock, who leads the flock to green pastures, someone who who finds sources of water, someone who who goes out and finds the sick, finds the lost, takes care and and heals the the wounded. The the image of the shepherd in the Old Testament is is very much this this protective, this this caring leader, this this one who, who just loves his sheep. It's very much looked up to. It's very much admired. It's it's a noble position. But then when you get to the New Testament, in, in the time of, of the writing of Luke, the image of the shepherds has, has drastically gone downhill. Here in the New Testament, shepherds actually have a, a pretty bad name. They don't have a great reputation. They're, they're not admired. They're not looked up to. In the New Testament, we, we come across shepherds who, who are a little bit poor, who, who don't have as much wealth or status or influence. They, they're just simple, ordinary farmhands. 
A lot of times for these, these poor laborers, these poor farmhands, they, they didn't have enough pasture land for their own flock. And so maybe in the mid, mid-year, the, the flock would, would eat up all of the grass. And so what would a shepherd do with, with a hungry flock of sheep and no grass? Well, the grass always looks greener on the other side of the fence. And, and so the shepherds would, would sneak the sheep over and, and graze on the neighbor's pasture land. So in the New Testament, shepherds are very much considered to be dishonest. They're, they're untrusted. They're, they're despised. They don't have a good reputation. It's, it's very different from the, New, from the Old Testament. But not only are, are the shepherds kind of poor and despised and, and grass-stealing thieves, they're also considered to be unclean. Not just unclean, you know, a little, little mud, little muck under the fingernails and kind of smelly like sheep, but they are religiously unclean because of the occupation of a shepherd living out in the field with flocks at night and, and staying with the animals. They are religiously unclean because of their job. And this was important for the Jewish temple. In Israel, all Jews, they wanted to keep certain codes of, of cleanliness. They, wanted to, they had to follow a protocol to be able to enter the, the temple to worship God. Here in the temple is the, the presence of God. And so these shepherds who are, are religiously unclean, they were, were not only despised and at the bottom of the social class system of their neighbors, of their peers, they are also prohibited from going into the temple. They are restricted from stepping foot into the temple. They, they couldn't come near the presence of God. So kind of a common stereotype of a shepherd would, would be someone who's a poor peasant farmhand, despised someone who's uh, kind of suspicious from their neighbor, somebody who's not trusted, and somebody who's religiously unclean. They were social outcasts. They were on the very bottom of the totem pole, not looked up to, no status, no influence, not real important. In verse 8, we read, these, these unclean, these unshaven, these, these grass-stained burlap shepherds living out in the field, keeping watch over their flock, the night shift of a shepherd, it's, it's not a real glamorous occupation. There's, there's not a lot to do. Count sheep, literally count sheep here at the night. But it's all about to change. It's all about to get pretty exciting for some of these shepherds. Verse 9, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord showed around them, and they were terrified. Terrified. I, I think that's kind of an understatement, don't you think? I, I think that's kind of missing the, the emotions of these shepherds. It's, it's late at night. It's dark. It's quiet. It's, it's lonely. It's, it's a silent night. The shepherds are out. The, the sheep are, are nestled down, sleeping in the grass. And all of a sudden, glory of the Lord. These, these shepherds, they go from the, the darkness of the midnight to, to the blinding glory of the Lord shining in the sky. And they were terrified. Verse 10, but the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all of the people. Here the angel comes to the shepherd and, and gives them the good news. Don't fear. Don't be afraid. I have good news for you. Good news of, of great joy. Here the key word is this word good news. Good news is, is actually the same Greek word as, as the gospel. Euangelion. Here the angel of the Lord is, is sent by God himself to deliver a message, to deliver the, the gospel message to these shepherds. It's incredible. You think about it, these, these shepherds, they're nobodies. They're, they're at the very bottom. They have no influence. They have 
little importance of the day. And yet God comes to them and first delivers the gospel message to them. It would have made more sense for maybe the angel of the Lord to come to, to priests or, or kings or prophets or scribes or, or somebody who at least could do something, somebody who has contacts, somebody who's, who's looked up to, somebody who's trusted. But God sends the gospel, the gospel of good news, to these shepherds. Nobody's. Just incredible to, to think about this. But, but that's the point. The gospel, which is for all people, even shepherds. The gospel begins with all people. God manifests his, his revelation and his glory with the lowest of lows. Here the key word is, is the good news. These, these unclean, these social outcast shepherds are the first ones to receive the good news of the gospel. These shepherds are, are prohibited from entering the temple. They, they can't even step foot near the presence of God, and yet God comes to them. God in his glory, God through an angel comes to them first. Right from the very beginning, from, from the first day of the birth of Christ, the gospel is laid out. The gospel is announced, the gospel that Emmanuel, God, is with us. So what does this have to do with worship? Remember, as we're going through this text, we're, we're wanting to keep a close eye to this main idea of worship. Well, worship is, is gospel-inspired. Before the shepherds could worship, they, they had to know who they're worshiping. They had to know what they're worshiping. Before the, wor- before the shepherds could, could worship, they, they needed to have this, this underlying foundation. They needed to have the, the truth of the gospel revealed to them before they could worship. Worship is gospel-inspired. It, it begins with the foundation of knowing who God is and what God has done. If we worship without knowing the the truth of the existence of God, if we worship without knowing the, the truth of, of Scripture, the truth of the gospel, the truth that Christ is the only way, Christ is the only one, there's only one way to heaven, if we worship without knowing those things, we might end up worshiping the wrong person, the wrong thing. If we don't know who or what we're worshiping, we might get very, very lost. And so worship begins with knowing God, the almighty maker of the heavens of the universe, the, the creator of, of us, the world, God, the, the one who is all-loving, all-powerful, all-present, all-knowing, God is the one we worship. That's who God is. What has God done? He, is, he has created us. He has rescued us. He has sent his son to deliver us. He has saved us from our sins. That is why we worship. Our response in worship is because of who God is and what God has done. If if we, if we get this mixed around, if, if our inspiration for worship becomes maybe something else, things are, get way out of hand. If, when th- things get changed and mixed up, if our inspiration for worship is, is something like our feelings or our emotions, well, that's a big problem because sometimes I don't feel like worshiping. Sometimes I'm just not in the right mood or I don't have the right attitude or, or I just don't want to worship. If our worship becomes inspired by maybe performance, the, the stage, the, the sounds, the, the volume, the, the noise, the lights, the, the, the theater, just the, the flashy distractions, well, if that's the performance-oriented worship, what about people like me who, who can't sing? Can, can I not worship? I can't carry a note or, or play, a, play an instrument like, like Nick and the worship team. Can, can I not worship? 
if worship becomes style-inspired, if, if worship becomes focused and driven by, by what's, what's new and, and what's, what's the hottest new song and what's the latest new fad, what do we do when styles change? Being relevant is actually irrelevant because it's always changing. Things are always progressing. But the word of the Lord lasts forever. So scripture says the word of the Lord lasts forever, and that's the gospel. The good news is the foundation for worship. That's what inspires our worship. So worship is gospel-inspired. It's a message of truth. What is this message? Verse 11. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find the baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. So second, worship is Christ-centered. It's a removal of ourself. The gospel message to the shepherds is this good news that, that Christ has come. Our Savior, our Lord, he is here. Emmanuel, God is with us. So here an angel tells these shepherds that in this town of Bethlehem, wrapped in, in clothes and lying in a manger, God has come to all mankind. For these shepherds, even more surprising than the fact that an angel of the Lord has shown up to them in the middle of the field is, is the fact that the Savior is actually a baby. These shepherds, they, they might have not, not been the smartest, um, but they weren't stupid. They knew the Old Testament. They knew that God had promised to provide a Savior for all mankind but like most Jews in Israel, they were expecting this, this savior to be some kind of a, a military king, warrior, dictator, somebody with, with high influential status, somebody who would, who would rise up, who would collect the, the support of, of Israel, of Jerusalem, and, and would go and defeat the oppressive Roman Empire. They, they weren't stupid. They knew a savior was coming. They were 100% right in knowing God has promised a savior but they had no clue it was going to be a baby, an infant born to a very unlikely couple, a couple of teenagers, a couple of unmarried teenagers, not what they were expecting. This message says the good news, Christ has been born. Jesus has been born, our Savior, our Christ, our Lord. How does this relate to worship? Worship's Christ-centered. The focus is on Christ. The focus is not on ourself. It's, it's about worshiping and lifting high the, the name of Jesus, magnifying, glorifying the name of Jesus above all other names, above Buddha and Muhammad and, and Gandhi and Mother Teresa and the, the Dalai Lama and even the Pope, all of us. Why? Why do we lift high the name of Jesus? Jesus is our Savior, our Rescuer, our Deliverer, he is the Christ, the promised one, the Messiah, the one who has come to establish his, his eternal throne and set up his kingdom. He is our Lord. He's the master and commander of our life. He's the ruler, the leader, the governor. None of us are. So not only do we, do we exalt and we magnify and we praise and lift up the name of Christ, because worship is Christ-centered, we, as worshipers, get out of the way. We're just the creatures. We're just creatures worshiping the creator, creator of the universe, creator of us. So the focus is on Christ, not, not our musical abilities, not, not the stage, not, not who we are, not even what we did. 
The focus in worship is, is Christ. Number three, worship is also God-glorifying, a song of praise. Verse 13, suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men whom his favor rests. Just think if, if one angel was, was terrifying, now we have a great host, a heavenly host, a great multitude, a, an army of angels lighting up the midnight sky. How terrifying that must have been. And yet, listen to their song. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace to whom his favor rests. The, the angels are, are praising and worshiping and saying this song. It's just a short song. It's just one verse. It's just a couple of lines. But there's amazing reality in this song. It's talking about with the coming of Christ, there is now peace between God and mankind. I know we think of peace on earth as a time of maybe no wars, no crime. Everyone is, is smiling and cheerful and, and, and happy and wagging their tails. But peace on earth, far from that, peace on earth is, is talking about this exchange with the coming of Christ where, where man is no longer separated from God. This peace on earth is, is through Jesus Christ, the, the prince of peace. Through his, be, through his birth and through his death, there is now restoration, reconciliation with, with our relationship between us and God. Peace on earth is, is this exchange coming in the, in the manger, this exchange coming with the death of Christ where we can now be adopted as Christ's sons. We're no longer separated from, from God because of our sins. There is there is complete and everlasting peace that is available to us, peace on earth. If you look over at verse two, uh, two, one, chapter 2, verse 1, it says, In those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Last week, Doug briefly talked about Caesar Augustus, shared a little bit about him, and I will too. Caesar Augustus was the great uh, nephew of Julius Caesar. He spent... Uh, Spent his life, Caesar Augustus spent his life rebuilding and restoring Rome. He, during his rule, he, he established treaties and, and covenants with surrounding neighbors. He, he built boundaries. He made roads. He, he had vast armies and a navy. He had a, uh, even a police and a firefighting force. He, he rebuilt the entire Roman Empire. During this time from, from 27 B.C. to 14 A.D., it's, it's known as the Pax Romana, Roman peace the time that, that Caesar Augustus ruled all of Rome and, and perhaps most of the world. It's, it's known as the Roman peace, a time of incredible peace for the world. And because of his, his great accomplishments, he, he was recognized as the sole leader of the Roman Empire and, and perhaps even the, the leader of most of the world. And, and he is credited to, credited to having a godlike divine characteristics. He was somebody special in his day. But at his, and at his death, uh, A.D. 14, the Roman Senate ordered for all Romans to worship him, to worship him be, because what he had done. And, and there was an, inf, uh, an inscription that reads, Divine Augustus Caesar, the benefactor and savior of the whole world. It's just so interesting. Here in the first century, the, the time of Caesar Augustus and, and also the time of Christ and the time when this gospel, Luke, was written Caesar Augustus is given this name, the, the savior of all mankind. And yet Luke uses those same words in verse 11 for the name of Jesus. 
the savior of, of the world. Caesar Augustus is, is said to bring peace to the Roman Empire, bring peace to all of the world. But Luke uses those same words in verse 14 where, where God brings peace to all the earth. Caesar Augustus, he, he did a good job. He was fine. He had peace for 30 years. But where are we at today? That, that's temporary. That's just short-lived peace for his Roman Empire. God establishes everlasting, complete peace with, with justice, with, with hope, with, with promise. And so in this little town of Bethlehem, in this manger, this, this feeding trough for animals, there is now peace between us and God. Incredible, incredible. Just one little song, yet it reveals so much of this exchange between us and God. I love the angel's song, how, how they don't mess around, they get right to the point, glory to God. Worship is God glorifying. Not only is worship a, a song of praise, like the angels who, who lift up this song, worship is also living, not just singing, worship is living. Verse 15, when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and, and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was, who was lying in the manger. Step back for a minute. Doesn't it just seem like everything's going wrong for Mary and Joseph? They're, they're far from home. They've traveled about 60 miles from, from Nazareth to Bethlehem. They, they're not in a, a safe and sterile delivery room. They're, they're not with their family. They're not with their friends. They're alone. They're, they're in a manger, not a cute, cozy little barn, but more realistically, realistically probably a rock cave. So here's the time for the delivery, and, and they're in this rock cave alone, and it's, it's dark, it's cold, it's drafty, it, it's wet, and it's filled with farm animals. It, it reeks of manure. Is this really God's plan for, for bringing his son into the world? This is their first baby. They, they don't know what to expect. They've never done this before. They're young. They're just teenagers. They have no clue. And for the past six months, they've been... They've been social outcasts. They've been criticized and judged by their family, by their friends. They, they've been cut off from the community. For Mary and Joseph, they've got to be thinking, I know an angel has spoken to us, but God has, must have something else in store for us. Can this really be it? Was this really supposed to be like this? Is this God's plan for his own son? He's got to be a couple lonely hours in this, this cave with these animals. I, I just think this has got to be just a time that seems to be going forever. I'm sure they're excited. They're also probably scared. And yet here come the shepherds. Normally shepherds, they're not going to be real welcome. You're not going to have shepherds over as, as dinner guests. They're the, the unclean, the smelly, the, the unshaven, kind of the manly men. They're, you're not going to be having these guys. They're not going to be real welcome in the delivery room. But, but here the shepherds come. And how affirming and encouraging it must have been for Mary and Joseph, this, this young, scared couple, to be not knowing, is, is this really God's plan to all of a sudden have shepherds come and give them the good news that, that God is with them and that they believe that. God's truth is now being revealed to other people, not just Mary and Joseph, but all mankind, the shepherds. I think this is so cool. These, these shepherds who who are restricted from the temple, who are prohibited from, from going into the presence of God, are the first ones to encounter the living God. They're the first ones to see Jesus in the manger. 
I wonder if they held them. I don't know. But that's so cool. Shepherds, the first ones that despise the outcasts. Verse 17. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds had said to them. After encountering Jesus, the the shepherds had a life-altering experience where their life is never the same. And, And these shepherds, they become the first evangelists. They went out and they shared the story. They shared the story with their friends, their neighbors, whoever would hear. Those people were amazed at at the story of, of the angel coming to the shepherds. Whether they believed or not, I don't know, but it's an amazing story. These people were amazed. The shepherds, they go public. They share this information. But Mary, her response is a little bit different. Mary isn't, isn't public like the shepherds. Hers is a little bit more private, a little bit more personal. Verse 19. But Mary treasured up these things and pondered them in her heart. Doesn't that kind of sound like a mom kind of treasuring up things and, and pondering them in her heart? She's got to be thinking for the first time that she's not crazy. This is really happening. This is really the, the son of God. I didn't just see an angel. That wasn't just a vision. It wasn't a, a bad dream. This, this is really happening. This is real. I'm now the mother of the living God who has come to us, divinely conceived by the Holy Spirit. She's, she's got to be a, a special time for, for Mary. And I, I know Mary and Joseph, they're, they're brand new parents. I'm sure they have mixed feelings, being, being excited, but also being scared. But how affirming and how encouraging it must have been for these shepherds and, and for Mary and Joseph to, to have the, the affirmation of the shepherds that, that God is here. Verse 20. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Worship is is life-altering. It's a response of obedience. The the shepherds, they didn't have to go knocking on door to door. They didn't have to go find little baby Jesus in a manger, but they did. They believed it. They believed the good news, and they went and found it. They responded with obedience. And just just like the angels, the shepherds, bust out in song, they start worshiping, start singing praises to God, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen. You kind of expect, you know, angels to sing. You think that kind of goes with the job description of an angel. But the shepherds, these, these kind of rough and tough manly men, singing. I think that's so cool. Just, just picture these, these guys busting out in song. It, it's got to be a new experience. It's got to be Something has to have changed in their life. It's just one of those life-altering moments where where never again is things going to be the same for them. Things are different. So after encountering the person of Jesus Christ, even as a a sleeping infant, the shepherds, they they experience this life-altering event. and, And their response, just like the angels, worship after the visit of the angels, they, they, they could have stayed with their sheep, but they would have missed out on this incredible opportunity. They would have missed out on, on being the first ones to, to see the living God, the God who has come to us. They would have missed out on, on being this joy, this affirmation, this encouragement to the parents. They would have missed out on so much. Verse 21, last verse. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. The child was given the name Jesus because this name means he saves. 
Jesus saves, the name above all other names that saves us from our sins, that, that re- reconciles and restores our relationship to God, that brings peace to all the world. He was named Jesus. You know, often I, I think we, we think of worship in, in two ways. You know, we, we first think of worship as, as something we do on Sunday morning. We think of it as the, specifically the time of the service where, where Pastor Nick leads us in song and the worship team gathers together and we stand and we sing. Well, definitely, that's worship. That is a part of worship. Ephesians 5.19 says, Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. But there's more to worship than just singing. There's also living. Romans 12.1 and 2 says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers... In view of God's mercy, to offer your body as a living sacrifice to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. So worship's not just singing, it's, it's also living. It's, it's willfully living in obedience to God. It's, it's offering ourselves as a spiritual sacrifice. It's, it's living in obedience and submission and surrendering to God. It's, it's doing what God wants, not doing what we want. Worship's hard work, but I think often we... We get torn between these two. We, we think worship is singing. That makes sense. But we also think worship is, is living. It's, it's somewhat of a lifestyle. So, so what is it? What is, what is worship? Is it singing? Is it living? Well, I think it's both and. I don't think we need to make the choice between one or the other. I think worship is singing songs, making music, making a joyful noise. And I, I think it's also living in obedience, willfully choosing to, to obey and follow God. Worship is, is both. It's, it's not just Sunday morning when we sing. It's, it's also during the week when we live. And so just like the, the angels and the shepherds, when, when they encountered the revelation of, of Jesus Christ, that, that worship is, is gospel-inspired, it's the foundation for, for knowing who God is, it's the message of truth. Worship is, is Christ-centered. It's, it's the focus on the person. It's not the focus on us. It's, it's, it's God-glorifying. Worship is singing and worship is also life-altering. Worship is, is living in the weak. I'm just going to close now with a, a few remarks on, on worship here at Harvest Indy West. A little bit about who we are, what we believe. First, uh, first things first, worship is responding. We believe that the act of worship is, is our response to God. We, we are creatures, and we worship the Creator. Worship is, is us responding to God. It's, it's responding with singing, and it's also responding with living. Worship is both. Here at Harvest, we've, we've decided to offer a, a contemporary style of worship. Contemporary style, it's not the only way. It, it may not be the preferred way. It may not even be the best way. Well, that's the way we've chose. That's the way we've liked it, and that's the way we're doing it. Yet we're, we're contemporary without compromise, meaning while we, we use guitars and drums and we have a stage and, and we use visual graphics, we don't compromise the integrity of the scriptures and work hard to incorporate traditional hymns and lyrics. Nick works hard at incorporating traditional hymns and lyrics. So just because a, a song has maybe a catchy chorus or a sweet guitar solo or, or something like that that's being played in all the other churches... Uh, Pastor Nick and the worship team work hard at selecting the right songs, songs that fit with us, 
as a church, songs that are, are biblically and theologically sound, songs that, that we can play, that we can sing, songs that focus on Christ. Worship is contemporary without compromise. Do you know that Pastor Nick has listening parties? I think that's so cool. He gathers together with a few other people and, and they listen to songs. They all bring in a couple songs that they have and, and they listen. They listen to, is it right? Does it focus on Christ? Or does it focus on us? Is it about God glorifying? Does it have the right tempo? Does it fit with the right song? I think that's so cool. Listening parties, selecting the right song. Worship is, is more than just choosing between maybe hymnals or projectors or, or traditional or contemporary there's a whole theology that goes into choosing worship. So for us, worship is contemporary, but we've refused to compromise the integrity. Lastly, we also believe that worship should be passionate. Something we wanted to be excited about. We believe, you've probably heard Doug say, passionate worship drives passionate living. And that's, like, and that's why sometimes we'll crank it up. We'll enjoy it. We'll have fun with it. It'll be inspiring. It'll be motivating. It'll be a time where where we can worship and engage with God and not ourselves. It's a time that it should be uplifting and magnifying and glorifying. And so our, our goal through this, this worship is that this week you'll, you'll walk out motivated. This week on your own, you'll be motivated, you'll be compelled and, and just propelled to go out through the rest of this week and live for God by living. And then when we gather together on Sunday mornings, just like now, we worship in singing it's kind of the icing on the cake. It's, it's when we worship, and this worship together burns us and ignites us and takes us as one church, elevating and magnifying our voices to God. It's our response because God is worthy of who he is and what he has done for us. Worship is responding. We're the creatures. He's the creator. Worship is, is contemporary, but we're not compromising. And worship is passionate. So let's worship.